I remember Declan Kidney shouting in messages saying, Wally's to go number eight, I'm about seven and Dunica six. I just kind of stayed at number eight and ignored it. <laughs> the Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the rugby channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. Lots to get into, but first I'll introduce my co-host for the afternoon. First, Matt Carlin from the NoHuddle.com is back. Matt, how are things? Good, excited. We're nearly there. The end of the road. Yeah, it's going to be a, a fun weekend ahead. And also joining us to that end is a former guest on the show, Steve O'Rourke, is back as well. Steve, how are things? Good, Ronan. Nice to, nice to be back on. Most wonderful time of the year, Steve. I think we can we can both agree here. And I'm just thinking back to my first Super Bowl memories, probably the undefeated Patriots going for that uh, undefeated season to that to that point, and then being undone by uh, Matt's New York Giants. Do you remember your first Super Bowl experience? The first one that really stands out to me is the Raiders losing to the Bucks. Uh, unfortunately, as a Raiders fan, that's the one that really really stands out because the Raiders went into that game as as such heavy favourites, and it's the only time I think in my my lifetime as a LA, Las Vegas, Oakland Raiders fan that I ever felt confident of success and then to be let down so dramatically on the night. Um, and I, my girlfriend at the time had no interest in football and I convinced her to stay up and watch it and because the Raiders were going to allegedly win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and it ended up being ultimately disappointing both for her and for me. So that's my kind of first memory. And that Giants game I alluded to, Matt, was that your jumping off point or were you, had you been on board by that already? Um, that was probably the point that kind of was the catalyst and really um, drove me towards being a Giants fan. Yeah, no, my first Super Bowl was the, uh, the Saints and the Colts um, not long after Hurricane Katrina. So I, I remember having a few friends up to my parents' house at the time to watch that. And at the time, it was, I suppose, something of a novelty because it wasn't too long that Sky Sports were showing the NFL. And I think Red Zone had just been introduced around that time as well, if I'm not mistaken. So it was starting to really gather pace at that time. And um, to be honest, I remember the first time watching, I kind of had the gist of it from playing Madden down the years. But that was kind of my first foray into the sport. And as you said there, the Giants were a decent team then. Um, they got better and then they got on to win in the Super Bowl. So my kind of um, first iteration of supporting a team in the, the Super Bowl was um, a bit more uh, a bit more memorable than Steve's, I suppose, hmm. in that respect. And we're around to this year's showpiece and lots of great coverage across Off the Ball this week. Mike Carlson was on this morning with Jim McMahon on last night and John Gonzalez from Sports Illustrated will be along tomorrow. So we'll be previewing the Super Bowl ourselves shortly, but a few bits of news to get to before the pick six, lads, and possibly too much news to get through on today's episode. But, Matt, the Kyler Murray situation, which you flagged with me earlier in the week and seems to be developing a little bit of pace, seems the classic like uh, quarterback, young quarterback irked by not getting paid yet and possibly some uncertainty around Cliff Kingsbury. Is there more to read into it than that, do you reckon? Um, no, on the surface, probably not. In my opinion, I think it is just a play to, to get a contract, but... If you were to peel back the layers a little bit and explore it, and I have done so, I suppose from a marketing standpoint, it's not unusual for certain NFL players to just do a clean sweep and then start again on their Instagram, as, as ridiculous as that might sound. Saquon Barkley did it for the Giants a few years ago, so it, it's not unheard of. Um, the alternatives there may be, I suppose, as you said, a, a falling out with Kingsbury and he's looking to make a move out of there, um, or alternatively, maybe he wants to go back to baseball, but if you're putting odds on that kind of thing, I think they're they're quite long. Um, I, I think realistically, he's probably just looking for a new contract and wants to be paid like one of the best quarterbacks in the league. 
And speaking of quarterbacks, Steve, I don't know if the Kyler Murray situation is grabbing you, but the Tom Brady one is certainly a pervasive narrative, which has, like, Tom Brady being who he is, it's extended into the mainstream and all this talk about a retirement. The actual retirement was quite underwhelming. I was expecting a LeBron James-esque, you know, I'm going, I'm leaving the Cavaliers, you know, a, a premiere on ESPN or something like that. Instead, it was an Instagram post, so... To what extent he's 100% retired was probably exacerbated by his chat with Steve Gray during the week where he said, never say never. So where do you stand on the, the Tom Brady thing? Are you glad to see the back of him or do you think this is going to it's going to drag on for another little while yet? It's funny. My relationship with Tom Brady like has been like so highs and lows because obviously the tough crew against the Raiders, their first Super Bowl for the Patriots. And He's one of those players that, strangely enough, the longer he stayed around the game, the more likable he actually got as a character. And if you'd have told me at the end of the 2021 season that like Tom Brady would be a more likable quarterback than Aaron Rodgers, just wouldn't have believed it. Like it's 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 amazing how these things kind of go in in circle. I think he's done. I think the fact he was talking about retirement even before the final books game of the season, he'd never spoken like that before. He'd always been adamant. Forty five was the cutoff. I think he's been really honest about like this the impact that the the way he's gone about his career, which has obviously helped prolong it, has had a massive effect on his family and on his on his relationship with his wife. And he's spoken quite openly about that. And I think there comes a stage in everybody's life where they go, Okay, what are my priorities? And the second Tom Brady's priorities stop being football, that's when he was never going to be Tom Brady again. So he took he did he wasn't going to do a Ben Roethlisberger and stick around two seasons too long. And so I think while the actual retirement itself was underwhelming, the reasons behind it and the way he went about it actually are probably better than most quarterbacks end up doing. Yeah, and like the practicalities in Tampa Bay, as brilliant as it was, that they managed to get the same group of players to come back for a second successive season. You know that's a kind of that's more of a a unique chance. There's very little chance of the Tampa Bay being competing at that elite level next year with the current crop that they've got. So he's probably thinking in, in those practical terms too. So I wouldn't necessarily. There's probably landing spots for him on paper that if it can be navigated and he, like the the books still own his rights. So it wouldn't be as if he could just you know retire and go somewhere else. It would need to be. It would need to be negotiated around, but I think there is probably still a 10% chance that we see him play again. But for now, it's uh, it's goodbye to the the greatest player to ever play the game. We should just mention briefly the, the coaches, lads. And Matt, I might go to you on the Giants, because two weeks ago we were potentially talking about Brian Dable being the front runner, and lo and behold, he's he's got the job. And it does entwine a little bit with the Brian Flores situation, whereby the Bill Belichick text and all this kind of stuff. So... Number one, are you happy with the table appointment? Yeah, uh, I think so. All, all things considered, um, it does seem like there's a remarkable, remarkable around, amount of uh, churn each year in terms of the, the head coaching availabilities. And this year, the trend was really going after offensive coordinators. So in terms of who was actually available... I suppose prior to hiring Brian Dable, Flores was definitely on that on that list for me. Brian Dable was on that list. Mike McDaniel was a really interesting name too. So I always kind of add in my head if if we went for one of those three, I'd be pretty happy, and we wound up getting that. So that's great. But um, yeah, not to make this about the Giants again because that, that's becoming a bit of a trend in itself. Whenever I come on the show and they're on, and I think so. Look, I, I think there's a, a few nice hires in there. Um, the Josh McDaniel one over to the Raiders is an interesting one. I'm, I'm sure Steve can speak to that a little bit more. Um, Doug Peterson's going into Jacksonville who have a good cap situation a quarterback who is 
surely better than what he showed in his first year. I think the fact that he underwhelmed so much um, sets the bar quite low next year. So actually he might play with a, a little bit less pressure. Um, and then in terms of coaching hires that maybe I wasn't as enamored with, um, the Lovey Smith one, though it was great to see, I suppose, a minority being hired, doesn't exactly inspire. Um, and then the Nathaniel Hackett one to Denver is an interesting one because a bit like Adam Gase when, he, when he's the head coach for Peyton Manning, you have to think that a lot of the offense is being channeled through what that quarterback does at the line of scrimmage and the intelligence that they bring rather than what that offensive coordinator is doing. So for someone who is the OC for Aaron Rodgers to go and get a head job is a little bit, I don't want to say dubious, but I think they might be... Um, I think they might, they might have gone for the wrong guy there. Unless, of course, Aaron Rodgers somehow winds up in Denver. So that's not real that out either. Yeah, I saw him at some golf exhibition yesterday and Denver Broncos fans were saying, come to Denver. And he said, we'll see. So uh, that's very much in play. Aaron Rodgers rarely says anything without having you know something behind it. So I yeah, think that's, that's still in play. And from your point of view, Steve, like uh, Matt rattled through some of the interesting ones there. I think McDaniel to Miami is interesting in that they probably shouldn't have sacked Flores. There were mitigating circumstances from their point of view for why they decided to get rid of him. It doesn't seem to make much logical sense from for those of us looking in. And then Josh McDaniels, as he said, like, like one, once upon a time, the hot young thing and a whole new generation of coaches have come along since he was that. So I, I wonder how you feel about him arriving in Las Vegas. Yeah, it's an interesting one because a bit like Matt, like Mike McDaniel was actually the one I had my eye on. I thought he was the most interesting of all the the kind of candidates. And I think this trend towards play calling offensive minded head coaches, like that's here to stay. Like I think one third of the league now is from either the Shanahan or McVeigh coaching tree at this stage. And it's all that kind of uh, process. I think on on McDaniels, I think I think he's, his introductory press conference was pretty reassuring in the sense that he's not going to have anything to do with the personnel side of things. I think that was the problem under Gruden, uh, too much say from the head coach. Um, and obviously, you know, McDaniel's own tenure in, in, in Denver didn't end too well with drafting Tim Tebow. So hopefully we, the Raiders avoid players like that. And um, But I think I think it could work. I think the, 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 the hiring of the Giants' former defensive coordinator as DC is a, is a really smart hire. Um, as well, so because the Gus the Gus Bradley experience was was fine, but you saw against the Chiefs, the team that you absolutely need to beat, they were the one team who had the the keys to unlock that defense. So it's just going to be a, a case of wait and see. But overall, I have to be pretty positive with the hire because I didn't think he was available, and and obviously having um, having the ability to get him then shows that the Raiders are a club maybe that were attracting coaches they wouldn't have attracted before. Mm. And like people cast their minds back to that cold situation where he took the job and then turned down the job and the implication was that he was holding fire to take over the Patriots and now he's probably looking at the Patriots and thinking, oh, it's not quite the attractive job it was a couple of years ago. So he probably, like the Raiders, by all intents and purposes, looks like an exciting proposition, bit of a blank canvas in a new city. So I think it, it makes perfect sense. But these are all very fascinating angles for the next season, but we should focus on the crescendo of this season and it's time for the pick six. Yeah, I think the Rams have been routine subject matter on the snap throughout the season, just given their interesting acquisitions and their their model of going after free agents rather than, you know, putting stock in the draft as is the norm. And then the Bengals on the flip side 
probably haven't captured the imagination for general NFL fans in the same way until this amazing playoff run. And the way they've built their team, Matt, is quite different in that, you know, two seasons ago they they were nowhere worst team in the league and then through drafting Joe Burrow and others and recalibrating the team, recalibrating the coaching staff, they have kind of showcased the parity that makes this league great. So, like, the context of the game in broad terms, it's probably not the matchup we were anticipating, but there's, there's lots to be interested in here. Yeah, there is. Um, I suppose that's from a, a tactical standpoint as, as well as a narrative standpoint. I remember when I was first on with you on and back at Thanksgiving, we actually talked about the kind of teams that could go on a run at the last minute. And we talked about what the boxes they need to take in order to do that were. So it meant having a decent run game, having a strong defense, and then just not turning the ball over too much. The Bengals have done that to an extent, I think. Um, I suppose in terms of actually tactically how they go about things, or a pass-heavy team. Um, Burrow's been unbelievable this season, frankly. And defensively, they're great adjusters, I would say. Um, but in terms of how they've actually built that team versus the Rams, you, you talk about disparity there and, I suppose, putting the draft to one side and just saying we're going to get the biggest names we can. The Bengals are generally quite different to that. So the way that they've gone about their offense, Burrow's first-round pick, Jamar first-round pick, Higgins out of the draft, Boyd out of the draft, that offense is largely predicated on draft-acquired players, whereas defensively, I think they've all but two or three players are taken through trades, um, and most of it last offseason, if I'm not mistaken, too. So... They picked really well in free agency and they've drafted really well in the last few years after drafting quite badly for some time. So, look, um, I think the, the way they've built the teams are, are quite different in, in some respects, but then defensively, the Bengals have mirrored that quite a bit. So, yeah, really interested to see how this game goes. I've got to say now, I'm, uh, I'm excited. Yeah, and we're going to be getting into the details, Steve, but we should kick off with the coaches who, you know, it's, it's a phenomenon in, in soccer increasingly and like the GEA, but has always been the case in the NFL where the coaches get a lot of love and, you know, we discuss, um, you know, their, their game plans and philosophy are attuned to how their team performs and no more so than the Sean McVay LA Rams where he's kind of come in and rejuvenated things and got to that Super Bowl in quick order, the one against the Patriots, and they didn't perform to the level expected, nor did he. And I'm just wondering, do you think he's taken away many lessons from from that being out coached by Bill Belichick on that night? Yeah, he's he's talking good talk in the build up to the game. He's saying about how like he just got into his own head too much before before that Super Bowl and how he probably over prepared and the Rams kind of went away a little bit from what had gotten them to the Super Bowl in the actual game themselves. But I think he's probably doing himself a disservice there. Like the biggest difference very little has changed with this Rams team. It's still very much a similar offense. They've just added better players. I mean, the the world of difference between Jared Goff and Matthew Stafford alone makes Sean McVay look like a better head coach. But in reality, the, the playbook hasn't changed all that much. And I think it's funny that you have two teams that, like, with the Rams, they are very much the identity of the head coach, whereas for the Bengals, they're almost here despite Zach Taylor. Like, Zach Taylor is not a good football coach. And and I know that's weird to say about a team that's in the Super Bowl, but, like, you know, you, you just look at some of his decision-makings, like the constant running on first down that's so predictable. Like, it's, you could almost set your watch by what they're going to do on first down and stuff like that. And taking the ball out of Joe Burrow's hands is never a good decision. So I think that's what, to me, in from a coaching point of view, is so intriguing in that... In, in that McVeigh is like 
designs everything to the minutest detail. Whereas Zach Taylor and, and Callahan, the offensive coordinator with the Bengals, have kind of said to Joe Burrow, look, this is your offense. We saw that when he lost his communication in his headset and they let him call plays in overtime in, in one of the playoff games. Like Burrow knows this offense inside and out. And they they just trust him for most of the time. It's it's keeping out of his way in the Super Bowl will be so key for the Bengals. I totally agree. Um, and to the McVeigh point, even more so, where it struck me that during the game last time out, he was he seemed so keen to like convey himself as the mastermind behind it all with those challenges, which were a bit reckless and possibly overthinking things. And they just about squeaked over the line against the 49ers. I think McVeigh, if he just sticks to his principles and lets, lets the game play out as it should, like the Rams have a very good chance. Um, on the flip side of it, Matt, like for, from the Bengals' point of view, like they just have to limit mistakes and almost put the pressure on McVeigh to, to make those bad decisions, I would say, because on paper, the, the Rams have a more talented team and the, the extent to which Taylor can affect that once the ball kicks off... I, I fail to see it really. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's probably fair. But then equally, if if um, we'll we'll get to the quarterbacks in a moment. But in terms of who's more likely to make a mistake between Burrow and Stafford, I probably would say Stafford is more likely to make that. So, yeah, look, I mean, they, they do need to put pressure on McVay where they can, and, and obviously Zach Taylor knows him quite well. And um, as Steve alluded to earlier, to there earlier, it's remarkable to think that a third of the league are coming from that McVay or Shanahan tree. So, obviously, they're doing something right. And um, and we, we can, we can criticise Zach Taylor, and I do think this team has succeeded in spite of him to an extent. And yes, they have put the ball in Burrow's hand and let him dictate plays quite a bit. But then again, to take his ego out of that situation and actually say, you know what, I know what I've got here, it's a good thing, the smart thing to do is to let Burrow do that, is another, um, I don't know if it is... <laughs> It's to credit him as such, but he took the knowledge to know to do that. So that is something. They went from being a bottom three scoring offense two years in a row to, I think, top five, top six this year. Um, and I think a lot of that is from him knowing when to step back and when to step in. And on to the quarterbacks, as we said, Steve. And, like, again, like it's, it's, it's difficult to frame these things sometimes, but sometimes the narratives are presented before you. And we've got this, on one side, we've got a veteran like Matt Stafford who not quite in must-win territory given he's on his first sort of playoff sojourn and like having a good crack at it after a few disappointments with Detroit and then on the flip side Burrow who his trajectory like people are always dying to compare quarterbacks to quarterbacks from the past and I would say his journey is a very unique one so it's probably difficult to draw these comparisons but irrespective of how Sunday goes like this season has been an unmitigated success for Joe Burrow off the back of an awful injury last season and to come back and and to some extent single-handedly bring this team to Super Bowl is so impressive so as we've kind of alluded to and it's going to run through the rest of our conversation I would say if the Bengals have any chance on Sunday Joe Burrow is going to have to overperform as he has in these playoffs. Yeah and like I think it's easy to forget because he's been at such a high or of such a high profile since LSU won that national championship like Joe Burrow really came from nowhere. Like mm. he had to move from Ohio State to get a starting college position, and his trajectory has just been like un- unheard of, really. I suppose in, in modern NFL. And the the thing that would worry me, and obviously it won't worry Bengals fans if they win the Super Bowl, like on Sunday. But the thing that will worry me is long term, like the punishment he takes, the the sacrifices he makes with his own body to get these wins to make those throws. 
it, like long term, it's not a viable strategy, but it's enough for it's enough for this year. I think that the Bengals are probably a year ahead of where they thought they would be. I think they honestly thought this everything since kind of they started the playoffs has been a bonus for them. I think really where you'll see this team develop is is next year, which is unbelievable to get to mm. a Super Bowl in a year that's supposed to be a transition year or whatever. Um, and then on the other side, you've you've Matthew Stafford who has performed exceptionally well has been so good against the blitz especially this year um and it's a true testament to a how bad the coaching he received in uh, detroit was um and you can't even say it's the people he's, he was surrounded with a he had a hall of fame wide receiver at one stage there and couldn't get this far um but it just goes to show how the difference that coaching can make to to a quarterback as well but i still think yeah what matt said you're looking at a QB that's more likely to make a mistake in this game. I think it is Matthew Stafford because two or three times every game he looks up, sees triple coverage, and goes, "Do you know what? Yeah. I'm going to throw, I'm going to chance my arm and put that ball in there." And you just can't afford to, like it's the Super Bowl. It's such a cliche, but two or three plays will decide this game. In in my, I think it's going to be a very close game. Two or three plays could decide it, and and. The Rams, considering what they have at running back and what we've seen so far, can't afford those turnovers. And yeah, I think it's advantaged Bengals in the QB competition. Yeah, and like we talk about the symbiotic relationship between quarterback and coach and in terms of character, I would say Stafford and McVeigh are quite similar in their approaches, whereby it echoes my point about McVeigh, where you kind of have to put him in a position where he's going to be make a bad decision. And like, if you take it back to the Chiefs-Bengals game, Matt, where the Bengals in the second half like attuned from the first half and basically said, we're going to let Mahomes have everything underneath. He can have as much time as he wants to dance around in the pocket, but we're not giving him anything deep. And eventually, Mahomes threw them the ball. And you get the impression, as Steve's saying there, that if Matthew Stafford gets impatient, he's going to get itchy fingers on, on at least one of these passes. So if it's something of a shot to nothing for Joe Burrow, as Steve says, you know, a bit ahead of schedule... Stafford's at a point where he might never get another crack at this and you wouldn't blame him for being a bit bold with his decision making on Sunday. Yeah, definitely, definitely, yeah. And even if you think about the Rams game against the 49ers there in the NFC Championship, um, that should have been picked and we could be looking at San Francisco in the Super Bowl again very, very easily. Um, I suppose you could argue the same with the Bengals and the Chiefs if Mahomes had just played even a fraction better in that second half um, or the last play of the first half. Then we could be looking at Chiefs 49ers again. Fine margins, the full way through the playoffs, and it really has been tough to call. Um, but to your point around kind of where the Bengals are and being ahead of development, you could almost argue they're two years ahead of development, and, and that can be a dangerous thing. So when other teams look at their kind of meteoric rise to where they are right now, they'll be thinking, what did they do right, and how can we emulate that? And as we know, it's kind of a copycat league, and, and that's what teams tend to do. Um, but if you're trying to model yourself on what the Bengals did, nine out of, nine out of ten teams are probably going to fail because you're not going to get a Joe, Joe Burrow in the top um, five of the draft every year. You're not going to get Jamar Chase in uh, the top five of the draft every year, and you yourself are not going to be in the top five of the draft every year. So very, very hard to do uh, to be where they are. Um, it, I've said all along it's a fairy tale story. I've picked against them twice, three times in a row now, I think, at this stage. Um, so I'm a little bit hesitant about picking them again here. And we move on to number three in the pick six, the receivers and the thrill of the chase because, you know, it's all intertwined and like we can divide it all up into different positions and we like to frame the quarterbacks against one another. But we look at the receivers here and, and Jamar Chase and specifically his matchup with Jalen Ramsey. This is an actual pure one-on-one, Steve. This is kind of, if they could bring back the old Sky Sports camera and just focus on these two for the whole game, I might flick to that channel every now and then. 
Yeah, I'd be very interested to hear the uh, the audio from the conversations they have during this game uh, afterwards. Yeah, it's a funny one because obviously a huge amount of focus is going to be on that. And, you know, Ramsey's reputation is built a little bit like Daryl Rivas' was before from actually teams scheming away from him. Mm. And, you know, that's where he, his, his strength is, that they don't put their number one receiver on him. But I think this, we're going to see it. But I think the... The, the Bengals have already shown that they're not afraid to, to throw the ball to Tyler Boyd or T. Higgins or, or you know, the tight ends, if, especially um, if the coverage isn't there down the field. And I think that's going to be just, it, it's such an advantage. Like, there's, on, this, on the surface, there's so many advantages for the Rams, particularly defensively. And this is another huge one. Like, they are so much better in the secondary, I think, overall um, than the Bengals. But Chase is a, Chase is not a, a hugely selfish player. He's willing to, you know, run those sacrifice routes that the ball is never coming to him. But that, you know, it might clear out a route for, for Tyler Boyd or whatever. Um, and I think that's, that's really interesting. And it's funny because that's probably the only similarity between the way Zach Taylor and, and the Bengals offense runs and, and the Rams, because on the other side, you've Cooper Cup, who's, you know, the undoubted, for me, the undoubted best receiver in, in, in football at the moment. But he runs so many routes where he's never getting the football um, because they've, they've, they've this like three by one concept where, you know, there's three players on, on the front side and one player on the back side. And Cup is there to draw attention. And then it's Odell Beckham Jr. on the back side taking a 15 yard dig. Uh, for a first down because that's how they know they can win because all eyes are going to be on on Cup and I think the the Bengals as the season have gone on obviously Chase had those two massive games down the stretch but other than that he's been kind of quiet but that's not that doesn't mean that the Bengals have been quiet and that's I think the sign of a, an offense that's working it, it, is that like when your number one receiver is, is a little bit shut down mm. you're still scoring points um, and, and I think that could be a big factor on Sunday too yeah, and Chase in the regular season game against the Chiefs was just uncoverable. And he's got this remarkable thing of, you know, yards after the catch and all that. That's all fair. But it seems like he gets so many yards without being touched even. So it's just, he just glides along the field. So just on your point, Steve, though, um, the secondary receivers, I might go to Matt on Cooper Cup in a second, but talk about Odell Beckham for a moment here because you think that back to last year's Super Bowl and talk around certain personnel within the game and Rob Gronkowski wasn't really being talked about because they didn't have a stellar regular season or anything like that but you know a player from a previous era it almost felt like and we kind of put Beckham in that category sometimes and forget you know he's still a player in his prime injuries aside and with Cooper Cup to contend with you do feel that Beckham could have a huge game here in LA on Sunday. Yeah, I think it's fascinating that in the regular season, um, Beckham was getting open on about 30-35% of his routes, and in the postseason, it's been over 65% of his routes. So he's stepping up to the occasion as well, and part of that is obviously the attention that that Cup is getting. But I think the difference, the main difference, just from a pure X's and O's point of view, is that the Rams are using him in much more like the Giants used to use him than, than the Browns did. So he's running the same routes, like especially those backside slants and backside digs, but he's running them shallower than the, the, the Browns asked. And it might seem like the stupidest thing in the world, but like when the Browns were asking him to run at like a depth of like 22 yards, he just wasn't getting open. But because of his kind of his hips and his ability to take cuts, the Rams are asking him to run that at like 15, 16 yards and cut in then. And that's what that, it's as simple as that that's making the difference in terms of how open he is. Now, obviously, he was 
pretty much the focal point of the attack. Well, he should have been the focal point of the attack in Cleveland, whereas he's not in, in in LA. But I still think it makes a difference. It shows that you you as a coach, you should adapt your playbook to the players you have, not ask your players to adapt to the strategy that you want to implement. And it's just it's just smart all around. And and I think he's getting his rewards now because obviously you know this is what. Odell Beckham has has won, wanted from the time he came into the league is to have that championship to go with the the attitude he's had, I suppose. And and I think you have to say he's put his head down and he's worked really hard. And if he was to be a Super Bowl champion, uh, you know, come the early hours of Monday morning, no one would deny him that he deserves it. Yeah, it's almost incredible to think, you know, when he first came in, it was apples into an orchard because Robert Wiz was healthy at that time and he was like a luxury. Whereas now he's become a hugely fundamental part of the team. Matt, on all that, like the receivers on show on Sunday, like there's a there's a host of interesting dynamics there. Cooper Cup, we should give more love to. Obviously, the Triple Crown winner, first since um, Steve Smith, I believe, to lead in all those categories. So a really special talent on show. But what's the most grabbing you about the receivers we're going to see on Sunday? Yeah, I mean, you talked about um, Chase and how he was against the Chiefs and, and that he was pretty much unguardable. And it was actually, I was only thinking about this the other day and the fact that he, he caught that slant route and he was just gone was actually reminiscent of, an, of a young Odell Beckham in the season that he was kind of carrying the Giants on their shoulders. So um, I read a stat the other day which said that Burrow's gone from, um, well, A, he's gone from 260 yards up to 285 in terms of yards per game. And then on those kind of slant routes, he's gone from seven yards per attempt up to 17 yards per attempt. So whether it's Chase every time or it's not, the difference that he's making to that offense is obviously huge and is really tangible there in terms of the data that goes with it. Um, but he's living in the shadow of Cooper Cup this year because um, it's always going to go to a quarterback and it probably will be Rodgers or maybe Brady now that he's retired. But Cooper Cup's been phenomenal throughout the main season. He's carried it into the postseason, which not everyone does. And I think it's just one of those historic um, wide receiver seasons. And I suppose um, he probably has a bigger chance of being successful now on Sunday as well, not because he's necessarily the better player. Um, but I suppose if you look at um, uh, Chase, he has to go up against um, Jalen Ramsey. Um, and I suppose the, the defence in general that um, LA have means that Burrow's going to have less time to throw it, uh, whereas Cook could potentially get over the top. He can beat you on a slant, he can beat you on a curl, whatever it is. He's just got everything in his arsenal. And I think if you're looking at him on this weekend, I think him and Odell, for that matter, are both good bets to, uh, to get on the score sheet. Yeah, and you touched on the defences there. We should get them in number four in the pick six here. Donald Thump and Matt, we stick on this trend here. And... I'm willing this to be a really competitive game because it's probably the best playoffs I've ever seen and it deserves a crowning moment, but you kind of peel it back a little bit and Joe Burrow's the most sacked quarterback in the league 51 times and you know that famously sacked nine games and somehow managed to win. And amidst that, that Bengals O-line is up against Aaron Donald and co. And you just look at that recipe as a starting point and it does not look good for the Bengals. Yeah, Sometimes you're preparing for a game and you're kind of writing up what you think is going to happen versus, you know, the different permutations and that kind of thing. And, and then the game happens and you look back and you think, oh, God, yeah, obviously that happened. It makes so much sense. And there is a scenario whereby Donald Miller and and Leonard Floyd get after Burrow and the poor guy can't walk out of the stadium. So there is that element to it. And um, at the top of the show, Steve mentioned that... Um, the Bengals are quite predictable on, on first down and that they'll run it time and time again. And, and that is so true. I do think part of the reason they did that against the Chiefs, though, was because of how badly he was scarred from the game against the Titans. Um, now, in terms of what he's coming up against this weekend, it is going to be much more like the Titans than it was the Chiefs with that pass rush. So 
certainly one for him to be worried about. I think we could probably expect Burrow to get the ball out of his hands quite quickly. Um, so back to that point around um, chase and kind of running slant routes, wouldn't be surprised if we see a good bit of that. Um, but then looking specifically at that Rams defensive line, Aaron Donald um, was pacing up and down the sideline against San Francisco really to, to galvanize that team and to ensure that they got over the line. And that's not something he, he typically does. He, he's not like a Ray Lewis or a Michael Strahan who's really, really loud and vocal, who, who's known for all these little snippets or tidbits that you see on social for being loud and abrasive. But when it really matters, he steps up. And obviously the Bengals are going to be very aware of that, probably to a point where maybe they have you know, a one-two personnel, get two tight ends in just to, to help protect Burrow where they can. Probably try and double-team Donald. But if you Donald, if you double-team him, you've got Von Miller there and you've got Leonard Floyd there. So I very much see a scenario where the Rams really get after Burrow and make him struggle. Yeah, and if Aaron Donald, who most would say, or many would say at least, is the best player in football, if he has a determining impact on Sunday, I don't think anybody will be surprised. But Steve, something you mentioned which isn't getting that much coverage is how impressive the Bengals defence has been and if the Bengals are to win the defence is going to have to step up this week too Yeah it is, we're going to have to see what the, the Bengals showed in the second half against the Chiefs and it's really interesting that the exact strategy that works against Patrick Mahomes which is dropping eight players into coverage and only rushing with three is exactly what will force Matthew Stafford to make mistakes because that deep pass won't be open, so he'll have to just dink and dunk. And he doesn't like doing that. He'll eventually get frustrated and he'll, he'll throw something to coverage. I think, for me, the, the, the most interesting player on the Bengals' defence, obviously, you, you've got Hendrickson gets a lot of the love and, and, and DJ Reader, I think, you know, is a phenomenal run stopper. But for me, the, the key is going to be Von Bell and, and how they use him, the strong safety especially, because the the defence, I was looking back on, on, on both the Chiefs game and the Raiders game, and kind of the way they disguise, it's actually it's, it's quite a plain and, and basic defence, but it's a bit like Steve Spagnolo's uh, the way he runs his defence in the sense that it always looks like there's something else happening, and then they go into something else just at the end, and sometimes you have Von Bell and you know, just before the ball is snapped, he's five yards from the line of scrimmage. And then by the time the ball is in the QB's hands, he's 20 yards deep. And the QB is like, hang on, where, where is he after coming from? So I, I think that's really, really interesting. There's nothing, but like, you know, Aaron Donald is the best player in football because he has spin moves, he has truck moves, he has every move you want from a you know, defensive lineman. And then on the other side, Hendrickson pretty much just has a bull rush. He just got lines up with the, the, the offensive lineman's chest and tries to run through him. There's nothing spectacular about it, but it's effective because you're constantly pushing that line back into the quarterback. Uh, uh, one thing to watch, I think there's only ever been five um, players who've won two Super Bowl MVPs and they've all been quarterbacks. Von Miller has a Super Bowl MVP, and if Aaron Donald gets double-teamed in this game, Von Miller has a chance to really make an impact. Now, it comes down to luck. It comes down to who gets the most sacks, who forces a fumble. That will determine if a defensive player gets the MVP. But I, uh, I have a sneaky suspicion Von Miller has a better chance than Aaron Donald does of, of getting the Super Bowl MVP this week. Yeah, and like we mentioned the word narrative a few times, and you can just imagine that coming up in commentary where if he's having a massive game and they're like, what, what defensive players have won two MVPs and all that talk and it could be willed into existence so there's a very good chance I think Matt will give us some odds on that later on but just from your point of view Steve it's interesting we've brought it up a couple of times but the Stafford 
maybe being a little bit rash and being goaded into taking a chance? Like I know in your position as a coach, like how do you have a conversation with a player to act against his, you know, not his better judgment, but his natural instinct? Like it's, it must be a very difficult thing. If he sees something and there's like a 75% chance against it and he's a gunslinger, he's still going to take that chance. So you kind of have to live and die with Matthew Stafford a little bit on that, don't you? That's exactly it. With a player like Stafford, and, and I'm not comparing the two, but it was it is similar that Jay Cutler, like the, the Jay Cutler that got you like dramatic touchdowns, is the same one who got you a pick pick six on the next play because he saw the same window and tried to throw the ball. And Stafford's ta- arm talent, and it's a it for anyone who kind of is like just maybe like getting into football, you hear coaches and and analysts talk about arm talent, like. What he does in the angles he moves his arms for his throws, like it's phenomenal the power he generates. It goes against all sorts of quarterback coaching techniques. Like the first thing you do if you get a, a quarterback who throws sidearm is try to coach it out of him because it's not as accurate, it's not as strong. But for Matthew Stafford, it's what gets the ball around the defensive lineman who's coming into him. Um, so he's developed it in such a way that like it's just a trademark for him. But his arm talent is so good that he you 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 have to take the good over the bad with, with him. And I think that's why the, the the Bengals will look to say to him, look, look, there's a, there's a tiny window that you can fit the football into. Go for it. Like, um, because they know he will. Like three out of four times, he probably will attempt that pass. So, but it, you're right. Like it's, it's really hard to tell a player who trusts himself so much, who backs himself, because you want him to be confident. But sometimes... Sometimes the sideline is the best receiver on the, on the field because that's the only way it's not going to be intercepted. And I'm always telling quarterbacks to, you know, if, if it's not on, just throw it to the sideline. We, we live to fight again. Unless it's on third down, then you can understand. But it's when Stafford makes those throws on first down and he doesn't give himself the rest of the series to kind of make up the, the ground, that's where I think he gets himself into trouble. Mm. And again, we've talked about the running games, but we should move on to them in number five here in the pick six. And it's an interesting one because you look at the stats and Cincinnati were 14th in pass play frequency in 2021 and LA were 16th. So like kind of two middle of the road teams in that regard, you know, they're not overly pass heavy on the numbers. But then the playoffs seem to contradict that a little bit where the Bengals have needed to throw a lot to bail themselves out and similarly the Rams have all but abandoned the run game and had some mishaps most notably against the Bucks, where they put the ball on the ground a few times so Matt I don't think it'll take much for either team to be abandoning the run game here but that's not to say the likes of of Mixon or Akers can't have an impact this weekend yeah yeah um, and if you, if you compare it to something like a Champions League final for example a lot of the time they're tetchy affairs cagey it's nil all for a long time and everyone's afraid to make a mistake I think the same can be said here where more so the Bengals I wouldn't be surprised because they did against the Chiefs that they do hand it off a little bit for maybe fear of being sacked or, or maybe just to keep the game close as much as they can because um, if this is a close game I think you would rather the ball in Burrow's hands than Stafford's so I wouldn't be surprised if they try to manage the clock and run it as much as they can anyway and they have the better back in Mixon problem is they don't have the better offensive line it's like a leaky, leaky bucket in that respect so, so that probably will suffer them a little bit um, you yeah, articulated it perfectly um, in terms of where they kind of rank in the league in terms of 
running the ball, they're both middle of the road. Um, and when you look at teams that typically do well getting through the playoffs, they generally do run the ball quite well. So it's interesting. Now, I, I don't see it being a particularly run-heavy game, or at least I'm hoping it's not a particularly run-heavy game because if both these quarterbacks decide to throw it a lot, however egregious the decisions are, it makes for a much more entertaining game than just seeing them run it down the throat time and time again. And Steve, again, putting your coach's hat on, you hear it on commentary all the time, don't abandon the run, even if you're behind, stick with the run because it opens up other stuff. Like, Do you think that's going to be the case? These are two teams who like to throw the ball and McVeigh in particular has these exotic designs that he wants to put on show, especially when there's a billion people watching. But there is something to that old idiom of, you know, just running for running sake almost. Yeah, and look, I've criticised it a couple of times about the Bengals, say, running it on first down, but, you know, Matt alluded to it there. It's much better than taking an eight-yard sack on first down because you're trying to force a throw that your offensive line can't block for. So I think you do have to kind of keep them honest um, and, and try and keep seven men in the box. But we've already talked about how for the Bengals to win, they're probably going to have to go to that like really light box of, of only three players and everyone else in coverage. And the thing, the thing is, because the, the Rams run that outside zone kind of, so their runs tend to be more towards the sideline than, than the middle of the field. Even having you know an empty middle of the field isn't going to help them. And we saw what happened against the, the Bucks, especially when the Rams tried to control the time of possession with with the run game, it nearly cost them the the, the, the game. So I, I I think we'll see both teams move away from the run pretty quickly with with one or two run plays dabbled in every now and again. But like Cam Akers, as much as a a medical marvel it is that he's he's returned, you know, after what should have been a season ending ACL injury, like he's only averaging two point six yards a carry since he came back. It's been really, really poor. And I agree Mixon is, is the better of the two backs, but he has a much worse line in front of him, so it's really hard to kind of establish anything. And plus play action only works if you genuinely think they're going to run the ball. And if neither team see the other team as being a threat, you might as well use that extra half second to run a route and get the from the back or leave them in for pass protection, something like that, rather than, than wasting time on something that both teams know is, isn't going to happen. Yeah, and like Akers and Sony Michel, neither of them have cracked 60 yards in the playoffs, yeah. so it's not a good look. But what we will see, and it's been precipitated by Debo Samuel for the 49ers, but obviously existed before him and will exist long after him, is getting the receivers involved You know, in almost a quasi-run game. So I think we've seen a lot of, you know, so, like close to handoffs to the likes of Cup and Chase, you know, short throws and just trying to get work the ball up the field that way. So that's probably something people can keep an eye out for on Sunday. And just lastly in the pick six, any other business, lads? Because we've, we've covered most of the elements of the game here, but a name we haven't mentioned is Evan McPherson, who's one of the most clutch players um, of these playoffs. And I think if it comes down to him having to nail a kick to win it, shouldn't be an issue. Matt Gay similarly has had walk-off field goals in this campaign, not from the same distance or possibly under the same pressure, but, you know, these are the kind of elements which, which could come to the fore. And then you've got Andrew Whitworth, who's coming into Super Bowl age 40. You know, you've got Weddle, who was playing pickup basketball a few weeks ago and is now, you know, taking serious snaps. I think he led the Rams for tackles a couple of weeks ago. So these are all very interesting stories. I'll go to you, Matt. Is there anything else we should mention here? Well, McPherson's the interesting one there. So I think I said at the top that there's a few ways this game plays out. Um, the first is that the Rams kind of hit fifth gear and they don't look back. Burrow gets destroyed. Donald run amok. Um, Von Miller wins the MVP, as Steve said. And, and we look back and we think, oh, well, we should have seen that coming. 
The second one is that it's game of two halves, and that that's not unlikely because both of these teams tend to play well for parts of a game, but not necessarily the full thing. So I, I can certainly see a scenario, see a scenario similar to the Bengals in the Chiefs game, whereby the Rams go up, let's say 10, 14 points, and then the Bengals rally back in the second half, or or, or vice versa. And then the final one, I suppose, is that the Rams are the better team, but Stafford gets itchy and he starts throwing a lot of picks and it's a close game. And if it's a close game, you want Joe Burrow because he's a safer pair of hands and he just, you know, when the room gets hot, he's the coolest head there. And then the other person's McPherson because he's worth three points time after time. Steve, what do you reckon? Anything grabbing you in terms of the miscellaneous section? Uh, for me, I think we're going to see a little bit of trickery. You've already alluded to the fact that both coaches like to, if the receivers aren't getting catches, they like to get the ball into their hand in the run game. I think we're going to see a very long throw by a receiver to either his quarterback or another receiver. I think that's something to keep an eye out from. Like Beckham ran that quite successfully with the Giants. He did it a couple of times with the Browns as well. So if I was looking at anything, if you see Odell Beckham on any kind of a sweep, Look out for look out for the open player down the field because I think that ball could be could be going and it might even be the longest pass of the game because if the de- defense are going to run the way we think they might run for the rest of it, it this could be like nip and tuck stuff and and, and Matt said like a really cagey affair. So the the explosive plays could come from trickery um, and like you know the thing is it's the Super Bowl you don't have a second chance at this you might as well just empty the playbook because you know you see you see coaches sometimes and in a meaningless week 17 or 18 game they show you something brilliant that they're after designing you know why not save that for a game where it actually means something so that's that's what I'm looking forward because you know anything that kind of puts a defense on edge will always will always excite me in a game yeah, and I think it was it ten years since Sean Payton's onside kick from the kickoff. So you know, there's always something in the Super Bowl. The lights went out one year, and you know these things happen. So there's lots to look forward to, and we always talk ourselves into a fascinating Super Bowl. But this genuinely should be one. So prediction time, lads. I'll, I'll go first just to set you at ease. I think I'm falling down on something I alluded to earlier that if the Rams get ahead and it's put on Burrow to throw them out of trouble, that O line is just not good enough. And if there's an invitation for Donald and Co to get after him, I think it could be trouble. So I'm going to settle on maybe a nine-point victory for the Rams. Matt, I'll go to you for a prediction. Yeah, going back to those scenarios, um, it's a bit of a head versus heart thing for me. So my head says that the Rams buy something similar to that, maybe nine or ten points, and, and they absolutely destroy them. Um, but this hasn't really been a season where the favourites have, have won out. Um, it's been a season of the underdogs. And no one, epitomizes, no one epitomizes that quite like the Bengals. Um, so I, I'd almost throw all data, all analytics, all that stuff out the window, and I'm just going to pick uh, the Bengals because that seems to be the kind of season that it's been. I love it. I hope you're right as well. And uh, in terms of prop bets, there's thousands of them, so we won't go through all those. There's plenty of podcasts where you can get those. But I normally give a tip on the first song in the Super Bowl halftime show. So for me, it's still Dre, still DRE will be the first song. I think it's like fifth down the odds. And the favourite is California Love. So I th- I'm backing Still Dre into California Love. So if, uh, if people are interested in taking my tips, I think I've been right three years in a row. So that's where I'm going. Matt, you have a couple of props as well? Uh, nothing quite like that, I don't think. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Steve touched on it. But um, I, look, if we go back to that scenario whereby the Rams do dominate, I really like Von Miller, 33-1, to 1, and to be MVP. Um, game of two halves, I like Odell for first touchdown. I think he's 12-1 to 1 on, on special at the minute. I think that's nice. 
Um, but if I am back in my own bet, um, I think if, if they win it, it's because of Burrow. So I'd go maybe a double up on um, Bengals and Burrow MVP. And the only bet I might actually play is because I don't think we can do the Super Bowl halftime show ones over here will be on, um, I think Van Jefferson could be a good shout for first touchdown just because the coaches will be thinking outside the box so much trying to outscame each other. It could be one of those maybe lesser names that could get open. Steve, on your side, in terms of a, a game prediction at large and anything else you foresee this on Sunday? Yeah, just following on from your prop bets thing, I, I haven't seen the odds for it yet, but I, I fancy like Matt Stafford to actually receive, have a touchdown reception in this game. Mm. So if you can find those odds somewhere, it might be worth looking at. Not quite the Phillies special, I think it'll be something different. But yeah, I think that's, that's potential uh, on Sunday. But in terms of the game, yeah, look, sometimes the Super Bowl doesn't make sense in the build-up and the winner of the Super Bowl doesn't make sense in the build-up and it's only when you're removed from it afterwards you go actually that narrative made sense throughout the season and that might be post-rationalisation it might be just the the romantic in me who's like looks for the storyline or whatever but nothing about the Bengals getting this far they should have they they potentially should have lost to the Raiders phantom whistles or not like they they absolutely should have lost to the Chiefs they could have lost to the Titans and yet they're here um so again like logic would say this this is david and goliath like it's a superstar rams team against you know a, a renford rejects uh <laughs> Cincinnati bengals and yeah my heart is telling me it's the bengals 27 20 i think they're going to keep the the rams keep it low scoring i think sean mcveigh is going to probably get inside his own head again and then that is going to be the narrative after the game that joe burrow only wins championships and the Sean McVay bottles it in the big game. Yeah, and I think we'd all love to see, as long as it's in keeping with the rest of these playoffs, it, if it comes down to the, the crunch in those last two minutes, I think we'd all be delighted with that especially. So thanks a million, lads. Absolutely brilliant analysis on the game, and hopefully it lives up to the billing. Thanks a million again for tuning in, and we will review the Super Bowl next week. Thank you.